and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4.6 states my people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge. But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4.7 states wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Lord, thy getting, get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your hosts, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're streaming live at several locations. You can go to timeforanawakening.com, which is the homepage and catch the live audio at that location. You can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening. Again, that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and catch the audio streaming there. You can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. In that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you have the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Also, you can go to abb2me.com forward slash time for an awakening. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana and our live stream ought to be playing there also. I'm sorry. Uh, you can go to, uh, you can catch us also on, on Facebook. Go to Facebook, uh, time for an awakening. A radio program on Facebook and catch some of the uh, uh, interesting articles being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor before you leave that page, just hit that like button. It's time for an awakening radio program with the fan page on Facebook and time for an awakening media is also there. Always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs on time for an awakening, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times and share with your friends. Also, check out that Time for an Awakening Marketplace and our partnership with the BB2Me. Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health, and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. Timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening Media. It's 7.08 here on the Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening, the June 25th edition of Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, two guests scheduled to join us uh, in the first hour, hour and a half of the program, activist, organizer, and documentary filmmaker, Brother 
Ruben Wally, Umusan, will be joining us this evening. His documentary film, Oaklawn, the film captures the events surrounding the investigation into the mass graves from the 1921 Tulsa race massacre at Oaklawn Cemetery. Also, we'll get into some of the uh, uh, background accounts and traumas from descendants of the massacre and the fight to get restitution for the hundred-year-old crime against humanity that was done to our ancestors back in Tulsa in 1921. In the second portion of our program, author, educator, and freelance writer, Brother Rand Miller, will be joining us this evening. Uh, Brother Richard uh, shared with me a published report, an article uh, written in the uh, newspaper in reference to Juneteenth. I think uh, Brother Miller's perspectives on that and insights will be interesting to our listening audience. And he will be joining us in the second portion of our program. But first, uh, we'll get started uh, with our first guest after a brief word from our sponsors. Mr. Moderator. Our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends and, and our enemies. Everybody is here. You are listening to Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasts or live programming, hit them up at timeforanawakening.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency in business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. Dooley Brothers, specializing in shingle, rubber roofs, gutters, downspouts, and vinyl sidings. Call for your free estimate today, 215-224-3882. That's 215-224-3882. Dooley Brothers Roofing, the roofing experts you can trust. That number again, 215-224-3882. 215-224-3882. Before your roof becomes unruly, call Dooley. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Overworked? Suffering with an underperforming company, headache customer, staff, or vendors? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? We turned a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. 
This is just one transformation created for entrepreneurs like you in various industries around the country. Not where you're used to from accounting and business consulting? Well, welcome to New Business Solutions. If you're ready to go beyond advising, coaching, and training and get implemented results, call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions apply the best comprehensive administrative accounting, operations, human resources, management, sales, and marketing to help you actualize your vision for yourself and your company. From anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072. Spelled new as in numerous on your device right now. Book your free consultation at newbusinesssolutions.com. History is a clock that people use to tell their political and cultural time of day. It is also a compass that people use to find themselves on the map of human geography. History tells of people where they have been and what they have been, where they are and what they are. Most important, history tells a people where they still must go, what they still must be. The relationship of history to the people is the same as the relationship of a mother to her child. From antiquity to the present, our people need to develop a new paradigm. It's time for an awakening with your host, Brother Elliot, Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m., for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit us up at Time for an Awakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's uh, 714 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 7th and Art Street. Brother Richard is with us. Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Elliot. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing fine. You know, as we wind down the month of June, um, you know, and thinking about the the music, you know, was this Amer- um, African-American music month or, um, you know, and celebrating that aspect of it and looking at, you know, just how Juneteenth is being played out this year and the kind of discussions um, that is bringing on, and and you know in Philadelphia that the council uh, approved, you know having uh, putting a task force together. We talked about that last week. Um, they did approve it. Um, it. It just seems like we're um, in a in a in a in a new phase of our potential development for generations to come. So I'm kind of excited about that, and then also. Um, looking at this, you know, with Brother Ngunwali to deal with the the Tulsa experience and wondering what is it, um, what does it ha- have to tell us about this moment that we're in right now? So I'm looking for that forward for that conversation. Uh, I don't know whether he's with us yet, Richard, because I don't, I don't. Uh... Yeah, I don't see, it. I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't see him yet. So. Yeah, you're not. You um, okay? Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm not sure that uh, I'm more than sure that that's not it. No, that's that's not him. Uh, Richard, um, down at the museum, uh, they did a um, recognition of Juneteenth uh, last week, right? Um, 
In fact, that's when you sent me the article uh, by um, uh, the journalist uh, Rand Miller that's going to join us in the second portion of the program because he had an interesting perspective uh, dealing with uh, Juneteenth, similar to some of the things that we have been talking about and 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 uh, exchanging ideals with the, the listeners in reference to how should, how we should be looking at this and teaching our children how to look at this and put it in historical perspective. Uh, what did you think? Just uh, reflections on the, you know the, the uh, you know the museum and what was going on. Well, I mean, it was it's, it was um, you know um, people came through. Um, there was two aspects. Is you know we have an a, a, a exhibit, a major exhibit um, there. Um, dealing with the rising sun is called what is addressing the question of of American democracy based off of a chair that um, George Washington was sitting in and Ben Franklin um, raised the question because on the back of the chair it had a sun which you couldn't tell whether it was rising you know um, or whether whether it was setting and um, 20 artists were addressing the question of is American democracy rising or falling? And then the core exhibit of, you know, the uh, history of Black Philadelphia from 1776 to 1876. So, and then um, the what I would call the, the commemoration, memorialization, the festivities um, in another section where they had, you know, um, different artists, um, musical artists, vendors, and, um, you know, public service um, information booths and whatever. And it was a, you know, people came out, um, um, you know, in both, in both places to, to go through the exhibit, um, you know, and, and addressing that question. Um, and then also to be a part of the festivities. And, you know, I, so you, you could say in that sense, um, for the, you know, African American Museum in Philadelphia, it was a, a great, um, you know, success, another for their Juneteenth celebration. One thing that, um, you know, I, I, you know, through this here in Philadelphia, particular Elliot, I was able to attend, um, you know, um, several um, Juneteenth celebrations and even been a part of a, a, a panel discussion um, with the um, Pennsylvania Historical Society addressing the question about Juneteenth and the relevance and and one thing that I'm wondering, you know, to your question, Elliot, as we have these um, festivities or c- commemorations, um, I'm asking myself, what, you know, um, what does it mean in 2023? And 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 looking back at the commemoration um, when they when it occurred, um, what did it mean to the um, people then? And my concern, Elliot, you know, is at one point, and I think Marilana Karanga um, also um, penned um, the concern uh, um, along with the um, next guest we'll have in the later part of the uh, program, you know, um, how we shouldn't get caught up in, um, you know, festivities at the expense of the commemoration, memorialization, and the understanding that these festivals we're supposed to be um, recognizing a success of what we, the work we've done through the year 
in relationship to our freedom and liberation. So um, that was that was I say all that to say that I, I'm concerned that you know at the museum we did have information to provide about placing us in historical context as it relates to Juneteenth, but a lot of these other festivities, I wonder, um, you know, did the same, you know, were they uh, conceived in the same manner, not just to be um, festive, but to provide us information and in our continuous quest towards uh, liberation and, and acknowledging, acknowledging um, our freedom. You know, Richard, you mentioned that, um, uh, the discussion, some of the discussion uh, centered around uh, our democracy and, and being in trouble or under attack, however you worded it. Mm-hmm. It's a rise and a fall. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and you kind of hear that among uh, black people uh, on, on some uh, black talk stations uh, among elected black leadership they make statements about our democracy being under attack. In fact, I think this year's mantra, uh, when the Urban League put out their report, I think it was about our democracy being under attack. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how our people is viewing that because they're looking at, and they're relating it to January 6th when Right. White stormed the White House as far as our democracy being under attack. But if you look at it in perspective of our people, the, the, the democratic uh, lifestyle, culture, governments that we had set up, even representatives that we had, have always been under attack since we've been in this country. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm not even talking about our struggle out of chattel enslavement, but even after chattel enslavement was supposed to have been over during reconstruction, our people elected representatives that became under attack, thrown out of office. Some of them had the daylights beat out of them. Uh, uh, Some of them were killed. So, and then cities was ravaged. Wilmington, Rosewood, uh, 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 Tulsa, and others. So how do we use this paradigm of January 6th and in relation to us about our democracy being under attack? We Mm. shouldn't be parroting what some of these representatives say. And I'm talking about black representatives because they don't represent, a lot of them don't represent our interests. They represent the Republican or Democratic parties. Number one, they might represent religious organizations or religious groups that might be their benefactors or providing money for them. Number two, they might represent uh, 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 church or religious organizations that happen to be black or even fraternal organizations. Number three and four, and maybe at the bottom of the list, they might represent the interests of the black masses. That's at the bottom of the list. But believe me, at the top of the list, on any of the lists, it's the Democratic or Republican Party. 
That's the interest they represent. And if it conflicts with your interests, then you, I mean, you, you don't even come into play. The only time black pop, the populace come into play is when it's time to pull a lever. And then they use that to try to, to, uh, to guilt black people into pulling the lever, and especially for Democratic Party and for the Democratic black candidates. But I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm throwing it out there about the, uh, you know, how, how how some of our people, I'm not saying all of us, because all of us don't don't drink that type of Kool-Aid, but uh, mm-hmm. how some of our people are viewing this when they, because you hear it all the time, and especially from almost 100% of black elected officials, you hear them talking about their democracy being under attack. And that, that's, I mean, you know, that's, you know, as you were saying that, Elliot, um, it made me go back to um, W.E.B. Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, which goes to, as you say, not necessarily um, democracy as is defined through the electoral process or, pol- or, or electoral politics, but democracy as a, uh, as a principle. Um, you know, when you look at um, what Du Bois lays out in, in Philadelphia, I mean, in the uh, um, Black Reconstruction, that strikes my mind. And when we go back to the 18th, you know, the uh, at least it's 19th century, 18th century, 1800s, you know, um, when we talk about abolition of democracy, black folks um, were in relationship to the, as a principle, not necessarily the politics of it, um, but as a principle, Black folks always had the aspiration about democracy being something that we need to aspire to and was pushing um, this country, this nation state to implement. And, And why I think that's so important, because there is no other people in, I would say, the American project that challenge whether um, uh, the American nation state was fulfilling the ideal of democracy than those who were displaced and brought here uh, under chattel slavery. And when I, why I say that, um, the notion of freedom, the notion of citizenship, the notion of land, the right, who has right to land, you know, the notion of, 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 of education, these and the notion of a quality of life, you know, where, um, you do no harm. Um, it's, you know, we as a people um, aspired for democracy to be um, um, implemented when we are as a people were excluded from, even though um, the European and the political machinery process, what's that word, you know, expressed about um, democracy, but um in its real, you know, in real time, it was um, not implementing um, through its laws, customs, um, and its economy um, truly the principle of democracy, um, where everyone had a right to participate and and share equally based off of their um, ingenuity and activity in a democratic society. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, and, you know, we here amongst us, I mean, I'm saying um, the body politics of black folks, 
when you raise about the black elected officials, we we are it always you know we've we've at this this um, binary system where, as you say, one segment is supporting supposedly democracy through the electoral process or through the parties. Should I say, Elliot, at the expense of another body of black folks who are being um, really harmed when we talk about the black farmers, we talk about the educational system, we talk about jobs, of, of, of fully participating in the democratic process. So I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I think that this thing of what's happening amongst us when we talk about, you know, when we look at that principle of democracy or abolitionist democracy, and we look at how we're operating that now, um, what's going on is definitely a challenge. I think our guest is with us. Uh, let me let me see here. Um, is this brother Ogunwale? Yes, sir. How are you, sir? My deepest apologies. I got my time zones mixed up. I kind of figured that. I just I just yeah, mentioned I set, two. I set my alarm, and and I and my first mind told me this morning. Please had his brother call you today and remind you. <laughs> and I would have got it different, but I didn't follow my first mind. But I put it in my alarm, and I was like, I told my son, I said, let me get ready for this call and pull up this number real quick. And then I said, oh my God, this is seven p.m. Eastern time. <laughs> Yeah, so my deepest apologies. No, no problem. Uh, our guest this evening has joined us, activist, organizer, documentary filmmaker. Uh, ben yes, I, I saw his. Uh, I saw it, uh, brother. Uh, brother, listen. Say your name for me, because I, I don't. I don't like to uh, butcher people's name. Egunwale Amushan. Good. Okay, uh, brother Egunwale. Uh, the 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 film Oaklawn. Yes, sir. Uh, that you produced which captures, captures the events surrounding the investigation into the mass graves from the 1921 uh, Tulsa massacre. Uh, before you talk about, because, see, a lot of the things that have been happening since then, and when I say since then, maybe within the past two, three years, a lot of our people don't know too much about. You know, we live in this country, and, and uh, news is supposed to flow to all communities, but a lot of things dealing with our struggle here, some of our people don't know anything about. They might know issues around it, but they don't know really know what's going on. That's why we try to bring people on or activists from different areas of the country so they can really inform our people to the games that's being played. But before you talk about uh, what's going on there and, and surrounding our people's uh, struggle for for. Uh, justice and restitution for that hundred year old crime against humanity. Talk about it from your perspective as a documentary filmmaker, what, or just an organizer, somebody in the community that's seen something, seen an injustice, knew something had to be done and, and just, and did some of the things that you did, put this information together, talk with some of the descendants of our, the ancestors and maybe some of the ancestors that were there because there's only a few of them left. Talk about it from your perspective. What made you start doing this? Well, it's, um, I'll, I'll tell you like this, it's deeper than any title. What made me, what, what's always made me be a part of it is my ancestral connection to it all. 
right? You, you, my ancestors handed me a hot charged baton of justice, and it and it scarred the palm of my hand, and the memory stayed with me, right? And so there was this responsibility, this inherent responsibility, to continue this concurrent, these concurrent events of oppression, and the idea of being a filmmaker honestly wasn't any different from anything else I've already done. I just understood the potential at this point of my life where I say, you know what? Every the media, the media today is one of the most is the most impactful propaganda machine <laughs> ever, ever. And if we don't learn when, you know, the art of war says when you don't have weapons, you use your enemy's weapons to fight your war. And so it was, it was critical. It was necessary to utilize those tools and put it in their lap. Because then you can't, there's no, there's no denial, especially when you get to, for the first time in my life, honestly, right, creating this documentary was the first time I got to sit back and watch what it looks like when the oppressor fights each other. And I had the evidence. So to present that in film form made people who don't look like us say, you know what, we, we're gonna re- we're at this point now we really got to stop saying, why these people got a chip on their shoulder all the time? Why are black people so angry? Now you get to come out of your cognitive dissonance and watch it on the screen and and get it. Right? Get it. It's, that belongs to you. That don't belong to me. So I just, the, the film is really, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a gift to, the, to, to, to white supremacy. That's really what it is. And um, it's, a, it's an affirmation, an acknowledgement to us who know the truth. And so that's really, you know, the journey. Once, the, once, our, once our, city, uh, our city mayor, CEO of our city, decided he was going to turn this investigation into a homicide scene, a homicide case, my first initial thought at our very first uh, oversight committee meeting, you know that mayor says to us, he said, uh, so tell me what you guys' concerns are, you know, at the end of the meeting. And I said, I have one concern. How is it that the city of Tulsa that is as culpable, historically documented as being culpable for the Tulsa massacre? How can you investigate yourself and prosecute yourself? Conflict of interest. Like, I don't know how, I don't see a positive outcome for this without external, uh, an external audit and external investigation. You know, and that's the short version, <laughs> the short answer to what you're asking. Yeah, Brother Nguwale, uh the discovery of the mass graves, I'm quite sure some of our descendants of the ancestors that were involved and maybe some of the ancestors, the few that still uh, with us that were there probably mm-hmm. knew of mass graves, but they didn't know exactly maybe where they were. Or uh, You tell me, how, what led to the discovery of these mass graves? <laughs> That's probably the best question of the night. So we did a story. Our city councilwoman 
uh, had done a story in the Washington Post. Her name is Vanessa Hall Harper. Prior to that, so let me let me just say this about myself. My, you know, the chief title is Alagba, which is Yoruba, West African. It's this, uh, in, in I guess you could say in the simplest terms, it's the custodian of the deceased of the ancestors. That's what that title represents. Okay. Well, well, we went to Oakland, myself and a former clergy at AME Church here, and a bunch of us community members, and did a a lie-in, like you did a sit-in in the 60s. We did a lie-in in the cemetery, and we lied down on the, we laid on the ground, the collect, and you can see the photo in the Washington Post uh, article. You can see us laying on the ground. When I tell you this, this is the most mind-blowing thing. We underestimate our spiritual potential. We went and did that ceremony, and the exact place that they found the remains was in the exact place that we lied down. This is before any machinery or technology hit the ground. So, so wait a minute. Hold it, because I want, I want that to really sink into our listening audience. Yes. You, along with other activists, some clergy and all, said, let's go yes. and, and to this area and lie down. All of us have it, yes. and it happened to be the same spot where our ancestors were laying. The exact same spot where they found the remains. You understand what I'm saying? In, in circumference, the exact same spot. If you go look at any videos, once you find that, once your listeners go find that Washington Post article about the Tulsa mass graves, you in 2020. You will see that photo. Then look at 2021 at this at the ground that's being dug up, and you will see the same location. The, the archaeologist told me because I said, "How is it so difficult?" Because that was the second dig. I said, "How is it so difficult?" We dug 15 foot deep in another section and found nothing. Well, we found some articles, some items that could have been burial items. But how is it possible that your machinery did not detect these in a much shallower location? And the archaeologist at Oklahoma University said, because the soil is too conductive. So when we ran the radar over it, all it did was bounce the signal back up at us. So then what they did at a later date is they did what they call coring where they stick, put a drill down into the ground and they core, they pull core samples from the earth to see if there's any biological material. And they found some biological material in the same place we did the lie in. Mm. Richard, uh, listen, our ancestors are screaming for justice out of these people. They're screaming for justice. It's up to us to get it for not only our ancestors, for our children. Yes. We can't sit on the sidelines, listeners. We can't sit on the sidelines anymore. Because some of these people are supposed to be working in our behalf, black elected officials and all, they're not working in our behalf. I don't want to raise my voice, but that got me emotional, brother, when you told me that the exact same spot where y'all decided to lay was where our ancestors were buried in the mass graves. Yeah. Richard, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I, have to, I have to say this because um, in 
Philadelphia, you know, they 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 also did a very great. And I want to um, go back to Tulsa, but when you mentioned that, brother Igunwali, uh, uh, um, something that was found it was a, a headstone um, by Amelia Brown in eighteen nineteen. Now, you know, nobody knew in this this great the Bethel burial ground, which is a part of Mother Bethel Church. On her stone, she had. That, that relates directly to what you and others and uh, experience. She said, she, this is, now the stone is broken. The headstone is broken. Whoever live and believeth in me, though we be dead, yet shall we live. She, some, somebody thought that these were the words that should be put. And so when you mention that, and you mentioned that, you know, you know, and we, we, we talk loosely about this spiritual, this, you know, the invisible informing the visible, right? But as a far part of our cultural tradition, that is something that we, we have to recognize when we're talking about, um, you know, our ancestors um, communicating with us in the now, in order to um, deal with these things. Whoever live and believeth in me, though we be dead, yet we shall shall live. Y'all went there believing in them. Those who were buried in that grave, is it fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our ancestors here have never stopped talking to us. There's there's no person. You know, even when you get a chance to view the documentary, our black state representative, Miss Regina Goodwin. She talks about it. She says, no way you can't drive through Greenwood. You can't, you, you can't go sit on a bench at night and not hear it, not feel it, not experience the energy of the, these, these ancestors. You, you, there's not a person who comes into that space that does not, cannot feel it. It's impossible. You can't be alive and not feel it. And it, and it speaks to, you know, uh, also in this moment. But something you also said, and as we're, you know, and this, and this is a conversation utilizing the film and like you to explain, you know, um, the process you went through, um, you know, in the film and, and, and looking for the time for awakening audience to go and, and purchase it. You know, the oppressors fight, fighting with each other. What did you mean by that? So when you when you get the opportunity, because so, I don't want to really spoil the film, but I, I do want to show. <laughs> but when you get the opportunity to watch the film, the documentary, what you're going to see is this. You know how there's always been this ritualistic um, demonstrative demonstrative uh, exhibit when black people fight each other, right? Whether it's in sport or anything else, there's something very, in the Eurocentric mind, there's something very ritualistic about that and very domineering and controlling. Like like we like fighting dogs or fighting roosters in a cage. You know, that, that power. What happens when you see, when the table looks different and you've been telling people all the time, about this type of disturbing consciousness. And I say consciousness because it is a consciousness. 
consciousness does not always mean something positive. You know, there's duality in it. Um, it's this idea that you get to watch the city of Tulsa throw the archaeological team under the bus and vice versa. Mm. The moment we are asked twice, who made the decision to cover this back up? You get to watch in real time them go at each other about that very topic. And we still don't get an answer. So it's like a draw match. Two people fought to the bloody death or knocked each other out at the same time. But you still don't have an answer on who won the fight. Mm. Or who, who really caused the most damage? Who caused the damage? So now what that means is you got two entities that are culpable. You have equal culpability. And that's what happens in the documentary. In fact, I say this is one of the things I say in the line I say in the documentary. Had it not been recorded, no one would believe it. So basically the documentary consists of, I took 10 minutes of a private meeting between the oversight committee and the city of Tulsa, and we created an entire documentary based on that 10 minutes of utter something that is utterly disbelievable. Yet believable, but disbelievable. Right? You get to witness it in real time. And I'm so grateful because you know how you, when you know, when you know oppression, and you know how things get covered up and how things get hidden. I knew that three a three hour meeting we had was gonna disappear. So I had a friend of mine in tech in the tech, you know, field. I said, Hey, can you rip that video? When I tell you that video disappeared, because it was on the city's website, it disappeared. <laughs> had I not ripped it, we wouldn't even have the evidence of what happened. Just like today. If you go read any article, and unless there's one out I don't know about, you don't get to hear that we found five infants in a city cemetery. You don't get to hear that we found a, a black a sister seven months pregnant in the cemetery. You don't get to hear that we found a big man, big-bodied man, in a casket for a woman that's probably five foot two contorted. Because the scope of the investigation by the archaeological team was we're looking for 17 black men that have been documented to have been buried in Oakland Cemetery, and we found more than they thought we were going to discover. We already discovered them anyway when we lied on the ground. It, it, it's like a Columbus moment. You didn't discover anything. On the soul level, we already knew they were there. You already had enough oral history that said they were there. But you wanted to you wanted to you wanted to create a, a, a boundary that we had to operate out of, which was we looking for seventeen black men. Even despite the fact that that same report said that there was an infant buried in Oakland Cemetery and four bodies burned to death. So right now, it's still a crime scene. Hmm. Uh, now I'm, I'm gonna call you Chief. Chief, uh, yeah, please do. Chief, the the um, 
the oversight committee, which was now according to published reports, it was made up of uh, descendants, direct descendants of the massacre and community members. Was the oversight committee formed after the bodies were discovered? How, how did how how was did was the oversight committee formed? And then okay, I got so, another question after that. Go ahead. Yes, sir. So so in our city council, we have one black counselor. Her name is Vanessa Hall Harper. Vanessa decided, you know, she made a she she did a, a story with the Washington Post and said this need this 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 investigation needs to be reopened because it's not the first time we've gone to Oklahoma. First time it was met with resistance ten years prior, right? And and people were concerned about digging up remains that that were possibly of white citizens in the district. And they didn't want, you know, like it, it's, it's sacrilegious to disturb these remains. So they backed out for fear that they might not find anything, and then it would be embarrassing to the uh, race riot commission. Well, our city councilwoman did a story in the Washington Post the very next day. The city mayor does a press release saying he's going to start reopen the investigation of the mass graves in Tulsa. The city councilwoman says, well, if you're going to do that, you better make sure that that group consists of community people, community stakeholders, and, and descendants. And that's exactly what happened. As we progressed, they started adding other members like people of native native people from Native American culture or Native American community and a few of some other people, you know, from uh, academic institutions and um, um, people who are on a scholarly level, you know, just have written books about the matter. And that's, that's how the uh, committee was formed. Now, Help me with this because now I'm reading from a published report, and your part, your part, you're there. So let me let yeah. me read the statement here, and then you you put some uh, some meat to the bone, so to speak. Okay. Um, it says uh, this film reveals their experiences, and is told in their voices. They said we were the oversight committee, but we were, but we are really the out of sight committee, says Representative Regina Goodwin. When she says that, that is she saying that uh, some of the input that the committee wants or the, the things that they want as far as reparative justice are not being heard? What does she mean by that? So. Chief, I didn't lose you, did I? I'm sorry. There we go. The city would make decisions. They started out making decisions with us as the primary voices for what was happening in the mass graves. Once that happened, as time progressed, our input became less valuable because they started telling us, dictating to us what the next steps were as opposed to us having input on what the next steps are. <laughs> now, what I believe happened is we got handpicked chair people who started out seemingly having our best intentions, right? But when you have a chairperson over an oversight committee, you work for the oversight committee, mm-hmm. not the city. 
Well, apparently the chairs were engaged in the meetings with the city. Then they would dispense information to us without talking to us. Right? One of our counselors in the documentary, she says, what you do for us without us, you do to us. And that's exactly what started to happen. So when we had a, a three-hour meeting to tell them when they announced to us that they were going to close the investigation, cover the remains back up, and we would have a commemoration on a Friday. Myself, Regina Goodwin, Christy Williams, we were very vocal about making sure they understood, no, you're not going to do that. So we had a private meeting the following week, voted on it. The city told us, you guys go ahead and vote on what you want to do. We did. Our chairman led the discussion. We had our, we agreed that there would not be a reinterment, that there would not be a commemoration. This is on a Tuesday. The, the city says, well, I will have all the answers you guys requested tomorrow. We didn't hear back from the city till Thursday at the end of the business day with an email saying, we're going to go forward with the reburial and we're going to have a commemoration that morning, on Friday morning. That's why I say, that's why I say in the documentary, had this not been, record, been recorded, nobody would believe it. So the spin is this, to summarize it, the spin is this. We were looking at the 100th year anniversary, and every news outlet in the world, not in America, in the world was there, right? Al Jazeera, all of them, they were all there, broadcast after broadcast, documentaries dropping. I mean, probably every one of them. All, all of this is happening for the 100-year centennial. The city of Tulsa wanted to make itself look good. The mayor of Tulsa wanted to make, it, to make himself, as a legacy mayor of the city, wanted to make himself look cosmetically good without giving any justice. And he backfired. But that was the agenda. That was the objective. So we're going to cover these remains back up. And now that the cameras are gone, the media has gone away, we don't, we, we don't need to even discuss this anymore. Same thing they did in 1921, days after the massacre. They said we're going to rebuild Greenwood. We messed it up. We're going to rebuild it. All smokescreen, all lies. Greenwood was never rebuilt, not by anybody but us. Mm. Our own hands, our own money, and our own tears. We rebuilt it. It's the same thing. They literally recreated a mass grave. In 2022, they went back into the same cemetery, grabbed DNA from the remains that they pulled from the ground and put back in the ground, and then dug in another area adjacent to that and dug up bodies again. Well, see, here's the, here's the game that's getting played to the public. The public, is, I'm getting all these emails and messages saying, hey, I heard they found some more remains. I said, yes, but if you read the article, they never tell you that they are remains from the Tulsa massacre. They never say that. It's the media that says uh, Tulsa has dug in Oakland Cemetery again and found some more remains. But nobody ever says, especially the city, very clever, they never say 
we found victims of the Tulsa massacre. So common sense is saying, if you're going to find bodies, where are you going to find them? In a cemetery. So all they did was move it to the adjacent spot, which was known as a potter's grave. That's where they buried poor people who couldn't afford headstones or proper burial. And they dug there, and they found remains. Well, yeah, you're going to find remains. You should have found remains. But they didn't say, we found remains from the Tulsa Massacre. But they had to dig because they got a grant to do further digging. So now you got to use that money for a grant you applied for, but you didn't discover any mass graves in the second dig in 2022. You didn't find anything. You took some DNA, matched it to some people that you don't even know whether or not they were involved in the mass. Now, now, I do see in the published report that, and l- let me read this, and then you kind of uh, fill, fill the listening audience in. It says, notably, many in the Greenwood community have blasted the city for seeking DNA to identify relatives of the deceased without providing privacy protections. The bodies must be identified so their ancestors can uh, finally know what happened to their family members and give them the burial they deserve. That being said, I understand the DNA database for those looking for their ancestors was created with no privacy protections. That has to be amended. Talk about it. Uh, you know, listen, black folks are wary about giving their DNA anyway to government agencies. But, I mean, what happened in regards to that? Talk, talk about it from from a first-hand experience. So, uh, my cousin, Demario Solomon, who is the attorney for the three survivors, he brought it out to the, city, to the city, and he expressed to the community, to our people, do not give your DNA to these people because there are no privacy guidelines established with the company that they are, that they are utilizing for this work. They, they will use your DNA and send it into law enforcement. <laughs> and they will utilize your DNA to further implicate, incarcerate, and disseminate even false information. You don't have any sureties that your your privacy will be protected. Why would you trust this institution or the institution that hired this institution to protect your dignity when you can't even dig deceased bodies out of the ground properly? So it immediately caused alarm. We immediately had reason to to look at that, you know, so they went with another company that supposedly would protect the uh, the privacy of people who would submit their DNA. At this point, it was kind of like, <laughs> you know, like we are about to ski. We've seen what you've done before. This mm-hmm. was more recent, though. This was just last year you tried to play us, and now you're going to come back again and still ask for our DNA? So at this point, very few people are even participating or willing to participate in that process. Boy. Uh, Richard. You, you know, uh, Brother Chief, 
you know, it's it's a couple of questions out of this discussion that came to my mind, and I'm and I'm trying to um, keep it in sync up. But I'm wondering, you know, as you were as you know the document, you said it's like ten minutes, and how you um, how this was developed, you know, this whole documentary was was built on. And then you had mentioned about the oral history, and I and I because I'm interested in oral history. It's two questions. I'm 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 curious. Um, you are from you are descended of Tulsa, um, as far as direct family, and you mentioned your cousin. And um, what what is it about the that process of collecting the oral history and doing a documentary that was informative or intriguing to you? Well, for the most part, the oral history had already been collected, right? The Race Riot Commission report that was established that you can find online and read that uh, report. They, they were, uh, uh, Ms. Eddie Faye Gates, right? That's our local hero historian. She, re- she interviewed hundreds of descent of, of survivors when they were alive. She spoke to many people and archived it in both in video and in writing. So all of that, that collection of oral history is with us. We've used that oral history. We've examined that oral history. We've scientifically analyzed and, and, and vetted that history. And we have, we've used it to further our, our cause. You know, one of my big things is the opening, you'll see it at the opening of the documentary. You know how we got that expression about the, the hunter is always telling the story. Now it's time for the lion to tell the story. And we, we, we authentically believe that, right? We witness other people try to tell our story. One of the biggest things that made Tulsa put Tulsa in the mainstream was the fictional documentary, The Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Right? I love the first couple of episodes. You know, I saw the correlations. I saw the relevancy. Most descendants hated it because you use real people and bastardize their legacy, right? Like the brother in the beginning, the first episode, running with his son. His wife got the gun. He turns out to have illegitimate children in the, in the show, even though it's a fictional film. But what that does is, we, why is it we can't tell the truth about us and still educate and entertain? Why do we have to change it so much? You know, change the sexual orientation, everything about the man. <laughs> And it was it was it was disturbing to do that to people who still haven't received justice, people who were never buried properly, people who actually fought with with guns, with ammunition, with courage, with faith, with determination, and you bastardize their legacy. So it takes people to do the kind of work that 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 myself and other people are doing to make this possible. Demario, he's been there from day one. Demario Sol Simmons. From day one, you know, when they first started the lawsuit in 2001, when I discovered, that's the first time I discovered I was even a descendant in 2001. When Johnny Cocker and Charles Ogletree came to Tulsa and were like, hey, we're going to talk to people and see what they think about having a lawsuit for, for justice and filed it in 2003. And I found out because my grandfather was sitting in the audience. And I was so pleased because I didn't know. I was so pleased that he was there. I started studying about it in 97. What, what? But I didn't know. I knew about Greenwood, grew up in Greenwood, but I didn't know about Black Wall Street. 
Well, wait a minute. He he never discussed. He did, didn't really. He kind of blocked it out. He didn't discuss it. it was that? No. That, that, go ahead. That was that, that was probably the most taboo thing in the city. Richard. Seventy five years after the massacre, there was a white man named Richard Warner who went and did an art of story. wanted to, wanted to reopen conversations about this. They put a bomb under this man's car. Now, what most people don't know is when you destroy a community like that, that fought you, fought you like tigers, fought you so much that you couldn't have won the battle except to go to the air because we had all possession of the mountaintops. When you destroy a community like that full of fighters, there is no way you're going to sleep at night as a city. Because in your mind, you're thinking, if I'm, if I was them, I would be thinking about retribution. Mm. They always thinking about that. That's right. So the clan, the clan grew by over a thousand members overnight. So what people don't write about and don't know is that throughout the year of 1922, the clan started this thing called whipping parties and kidnapping parties where they would send informants into the black community to find out who's talking about retaliation, retribution, or political, uh, political veracity. How do we do, how do we build political power? And if you were one of those people, they would take you out to the country, kidnap you, whip you, or kill you. That was all of 1922 to terrorize us into silence. And every generation to follow taught the next generation, do not talk about the massacre. Richard, let me let me say this before Chief continues. Didn't we hear this before, Richard? Yeah. When we had uh, uh, um, one of the descendants of Emmett Till on the program, and she mentioned that she wasn't aware that she was related to Emmett till she was in college because they didn't talk about it. You, you remember, Richard? Yeah. And these people we dealing with, just like Amos Wilson says in that clip I play, that we sleep with Mary and love, they don't want you talking about these things. They want to set the parameters on how we talk about our ancestors, any justice we get. They want to set the parameters for these things, the so-called citizenship that black people think they enjoy. They want to set the parameters of all these things. And some black people are good with that. They don't mind that. But it's a large segment of our people that want to be free like our ancestors wanted to be free. I'm just throwing that in there, uh, 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 Chief. Uh, I'm, uh, listen, Chief, let me ask you something here. Because you mentioned something earlier about our people rebuilding. And I want to read a portion of this published report that came from the Brookings in two, uh, May 28, 2021. But let me say this first. Because our people fought for this country in wars almost since the beginning. When America threw a bomb on Japan in those two cities with innocent men, women, and children and blew them to smithereens, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They had a Marshall Plan and rebuilt Japan. 
because they envisioned Japan being a ally, which they are now. They did the same thing in Germany when they went over there and, 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 and uh, went after Hitler, and he was supposed to be this, this uh, terrible guy. But when whatever they did in Europe to Italy and Germany, they went over there in a the Marshall Plan and rebuilt their brothers, their, their homeland. During the Vietnam War, Vietnamese were supposed to be enemies. They instituted a Marshall Plan there. They brought up a lot of Vietnamese here. They set up shop in your communities and became rich off of black people. The government helped them get back on their feet after they destroyed them. Now, you had Tulsa and other cities where our people that are supposed to be citizens now, our people scream about their citizens here. You had two cities, and we're talking about Tulsa now. Our people were citizens here. And it was destroyed by the government, whether it was federal, state, or local. It was still government. They destroyed the city. Where was the Marshall Plan to rebuild it? You're a citizen in this country, or supposed to be. Let me read this from the Brookings, and I'm going to pass it back over to the chief. It says, and this was from a May 28th article, it says over... Over 100 years after the worst racial massacre in U.S. history, the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, remains highly segregated, with black residents living in poverty at much higher rates than whites. In 1929, only four years after the massacre, Greenwood hosted the National Conference of Negro, the National Negro Business League. The district rebuilt and continued to flourish through the 1940s. The Oklahoma Historical Society notes that uh, during this period, the district uh, boasted over 300 black-owned and black-operated business establishments. While black people comprise uh, over 10% of Tulsa's metropolis population, black-owned businesses only comprise 1.25% of the area's 20,000 businesses. Without direct connection to sources of capital investment, of loans, Tulsa's black residents and communities face barriers to create and expand businesses, and thus also face barriers to the personal and communal wealth that business ownership can create. Presently, Tulsa has 30 black-owned businesses in the area. It says uh, Tulsa... North uh, Tulsa is highly segregated. North Tulsa, defined as north of Highway 244, holds 41% of black Tulsa population. Many census tracts in northwest Tulsa are over 80% black. More than 35% of North Tulsa residents live in poverty. And 33.5% of black Tulsans also live below the poverty line. So when we see all of these things, and we see that the percentage of businesses in Tulsa is similar to the percentage of business in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the fifth largest city in this country, and you only have 3% of businesses that are black-owned in this city. 
Tulsa, according to this article here, is 1.25%. It seems eerily similar all throughout the country. Even areas that you would consider a black metropolis like D.C. and Atlanta have single-digit businesses. We discussed this on the program about three weeks ago. Nowhere near commensurate to the black population. So this is systematic. We live in a racist society, period. Newsflash to Kamala Harris and Tim Scott. We live in a racist society. And and, uh, uh, Barack Obama. We live in a racist society. It's killing our people physically and mentally. We got to do something about it. Chief, I wonder, go ahead. Go ahead, Richard. Go ahead. Based off of what, what Elliot just raised and in, in relationship to something that you said about um, the lawsuit in 2003, um, can you speak about that lawsuit? And was that in relationship to, was the lawsuit in relationship to reparations for what happened in Tulsa or was it for something else? Yes, it was strictly for reparations. Um they they went to you know the the court the federal court here federal court uh determined that they had a great case a good case a solid case however statute of limitations had run out so they appealed to the supreme court in 2005 supreme court said the same thing so then john conyers introduced a bill called the john ho franklin reconciliation act bill which would basically find a way they were they would find a way to circumnavigate the statute of limitations based on the fact that there was no no way that the same city that destroyed this community was going to give them justice in the courts. <laughs> it was impossible. Well, they couldn't even get a quorum for the bill, so the bill died. So did the fight for reparations at that point, because you know once you go to the Supreme Court, that's the, that's the final thing. So, um, my cousin DeMario reached out to me in 2020 and said, Chief, y'all forgive my chickens. <laughs> they said, Chief, um, they will be a part of the program too. They're like, no, they co signing, co signing. Um, they, you know, he said, I think I found a loophole. So, I was getting some, some form of restitution. He said, you notice that Oklahoma pharmaceutical industry just filed the $527 million lawsuit and won in the Supreme Court against the pharmaceutical industry for the opioids crisis. Mm-hmm. The state of Oklahoma won that. He said it was a public nuisance lawsuit. He said, do you realize the same grounds that they used in that lawsuit fit line by line what happened in Tulsa? Line by line. And we can use that. So we've gone to court three times. We filed a lawsuit against the National Guard, Sheriff's Department, Police Department, Chamber of Commerce, City of Tulsa. They filed for a motion to dismiss three times since we filed that lawsuit in 2020. On May 10th of 2023, we were in court on Mother Fletcher, the oldest survivor's birthday. She turned 109 in court. Mm. And the judge 
simply said at the end of the court hearing, I will give you a written answer in seven days. We haven't heard a word. And my greatest fear has been they're going to delay, delay, delay until these ancestors, these people become ancestors. Mm. Right? But at the same time, like Mother Fletcher said, Mother Fletcher wrote the judge a letter that day. They read it out loud. She said, I'm only alive for divine intervention so that I can get justice. (laughs) I said, man, there you go. Queen has spoken. What now? What say ye now? Silence. Because the greatest fear in Tulsa is that they will see a repeat if they give the wrong answer. And that is from the white citizens of Tulsa. No, that is from the black citizens of okay. Tulsa. Mm-hmm. See, when you haven't when you haven't given remedy for a crime that was committed, on no level, the collective trauma that we have experienced here creates a collective reaction, mm-hmm. right? Like when his brother Terrence Crutcher was killed in Tulsa with his hands up and his car broke down in the middle of the street in broad daylight, coming from college, from his college class. He he has his hands raised up on camera, walks to his vehicle while this white woman, white officer with a gun pointed at him. Yep. Tells him to stop, and she, he leans up against that car door with his hands up, and she shoots him in cold blood. Mm. And her husband is in the helicopter watching it, saying, that's a big dude. The response Black folks assembled and marched straight to the police department. They went to the source of that crime. They arrested her and charged her immediately without court. Because it was a, it was a matter of, of, of state security. It wasn't about charging her. It was about saying, oh, we got to do something. You better do something quick because <laughs> it, it's about to get bad. It's about to, get, it's about to get really bad. It was a panic move. First time in history, officer been charged immediately. She gets to court and is let off months later. But they needed to charge her immediately so that they could make it look like yes. they were going to do the right thing because you have to pacify these people, why they are at their angriest. Thank you. By any means necessary. <laughs> and that's the fear. Collective trauma. Because that trauma has one response. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in, in going to, you know, going back and I would like you to mention the documentary again. Um, I know Elliot will post it, but um, one thing that, that comes up is about, um, and where I know this is happening um, here in in, the, in Pennsylvania, um, the the importance of cemeteries. I want, based off of your documentary and and the experience and you being a descendant of Tulsa, um, how important is black cemeteries? How important is black Cemeteries to should be to black people. Well, when you when you understand 
and I, and I say this especially for Oklahoma because of the tribal relationship, you know, with black folks being enslaved by Native American people in Oklahoma. Being being tied to the land, probably your most sacred relationship mm. outside of the womb that your woman has that bears children. Because it bears fruit that sustains you. It bears water that sustains you. know what I'm saying? It's, it's a force of life. So the idea and the relationship, the idea of how we buried, how the way we bury our ancestors is different from other people, right? We have we have certain certain ceremonies and things that we do to that land. How we connect? How we are connected to the land? Like the first time I saw, you know, gangsters on a video doing foreign libation. Like, where did you learn that? <laughs> Who taught you how to do that? I don't know. I just know that's what you're supposed to do. Okay, yeah, somehow you retained a tradition that's thousands of years older than you, and you got it because you understand the connectivity between those you are placed in the ground and those who are outside the ground, right? And, and, it, and, we, and we really got to get back to these pine boxes, not this, this junk we're paying a, a bunch of money for. And the reason I say that is because when we biodegrade into the earth, you become the earth. <laughs> you understand what I, I'm, I'm saying? Something really big right now. <laughs> when you biodegrade into the earth and the earth is conscious, it's alive, it vibrates, it moves, it speaks. You become the very thing that just sustains you, even in this little this body I'm in right now. I still, I'm still, I contain inside of me all the gases, all the atoms, all the chemicals, all everything that's in the planet is inside of my current body. What makes me separate from it? We've always understood that on some, on, whether it was on a primal level, or on an educated level, or just on a basic inherited understanding that don't even need to be spoken. Like watching clouds or seeing birds move and understanding what, what kind of weather about to happen, right? Is that kind of connectivity that is a part of who we are. So the earth and these, these places we call cemeteries that we used to call groves, that's, that's where we go to connect, right? Like when my father passed, my mama brought real food to the altar because she said, if my husband can smell them fake flowers y'all take on Memorial Day, he going to mm. smell my food. <laughs> <laughs> like, it didn't get much deeper than that for me. Mm -hmm. Right? I said, now that's divine wisdom. She's saying, give to them what belongs to them because the idea of death is not a reality. Death is simply an opportunity for something new to occur or rebirth to occur, right? So even how we perceive this idea of death as some morbid reality, we call on our ancestors. We don't. We, our ancestors ain't dead, and they not ghosts, right? We 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 we, we uh, all of them great mothers that's in our families who will say, "I dreamed about your uncle last night. I dreamed about your daddy last night," right? This this is the Greenwood experience for us. And they communicate with us all the time. Tell us how to move. Tell us where to go. 
right? And they say, listen, I'm sitting next to God. Whatever you can see, whatever you perceive that as, I'm sitting right there with it, with that source. So who best to communicate divine messages to you than the people who are connected to you in some form or fashion? Even people that ain't had parents that's adopted get it. They know. You know, you hear people say, man, something told me to do that. It wasn't something. <laughs> it's someone that told you to do that. The voiceless, the faceless, the ones that don't even have boundaries anymore, like we do. You know, it's that type of connectivity. That's what, that's what those cemeteries, those places they call cemeteries mean to us. That's why when they started the reburial, I said, I tell you what, if my DNA matches my great aunt, who we don't know what happened, I don't know what happened to Aunt Mary. But if my DNA matches her, do not you, I refuse to have her buried in this cemetery, in the same cemetery that you, you got your city booster, Tate Brady, who was a Klansman that participated in the massacre, buried in the same cemetery. You will never see Jews in the same cemetery with Hitler. <laughs> so why would you do that to us? You can't if we don't allow it. Yes. That's why we have to reject it outright. Reject it outright. I understand that you're doing a, you're in the process of writing a book as it relates to your, your, your documentary and the film is is that true? What's up? Well, yeah, I'm I'm writing a book that that will be connected to actually. We've been I've been working with a team that's uh, of of really powerful people in the film industry uh, who are doing a few who who are planning to do a feature film about this. Uh, what happened in Tulsa? Not just the destruction, but the very beginnings. Mm-hmm. And we're uh, yeah. So my, anyway, it's, it's the film is really based on my book. And so um, that's what we're in the process of doing right now. And the book is going to expose the unanswered questions about the Tulsa massacre because everybody got it wrong as far as why it happened. Mm. I've read every book, every dissertation, every journal. But you know how you know how we say cause and effect? Nobody really just ventured into the cause. They just assumed, right? They gave us assumptions. Napoleon Bonaparte said, history is a set of lies agreed upon. That meant I had to go sift through all the lies and all the suggestive narratives that say this is not what happened. Just like academia, folks in academia here locally saying, we doubt very seriously that Greenwood was burned. Even a white author who wrote one of the most notable books about the massacre Mm. says the same thing. (laughs) We doubt very seriously that Greenwood was bombed. You would pay attention to the language. They said bombed. Bombed as an explosion. Like I, you didn't hear explosions. If you drop a turpentine bomb, if you drop, you see what I'm saying? You, and these are not expert testimonies. So it's not like you can read the book, look at the sources, and see the citations and find an actual expert who gave them that notion. Yet when you look at the pictures, and I've shown, I, do, I own a tour company, a Black Wall Street tour company, and I've shown military officers, and I say, hey, anybody in demolition, can you, I'm going to show you a photo, and I want you to tell me where you think that picture was taken. 
every one of them will say World War One or World War Two. I said that looks like explosions. Oh, that's a, that's that's an explosion. I said, okay, so we're, all I need to get is expert testimony. Then we don't have to worry about propagandists and people who have suggestive narratives, right? Because the narrative is, well, that if you're flying a plane like that, it would have been ridiculous to try to light a dynamite stick. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. First of all, who said dynamite? We didn't. Our witnesses never said dynamite. They said they saw them drop things out of airplanes that was setting buildings on fire. Precise words. You said. They said dynamite. We didn't say dynamite. Trying to light a dynamite stick in a in a biplane sitting on a fuselage would be suicidal. And uh, you heard of kamikazes, right? <laughs> if you went to that extreme to burn down our district, you would have done anything. But it, but but I digress. How many grenades were? What kind of grenades were used in World War II? This is me doing research. I'm a history recovery specialist. I'm not a historian. I research history. How many grenades? What types of grenades were used in World War One? Because we know for a fact that brothers brought back air-cooled machine guns to, to Greenwood from World War One. We know for a fact that they used two types of grenade between 1919 and 1920 in World War I, in, in, in the military. First grenade, they got rid of because it kept most of them were duds. Second grenade, they enhanced it. So you can't tell me anything about what happened to our district when the evidence shows that you definitely bombed that district and you did it deliberately. Chief, listen, I want to thank you for your work and what you're doing. The ancestors are pleased with your work and what you're doing, brother. It takes a lot of organizing and effort to do what you're doing. And to keep doing it before you leave tonight, give us any, uh, give us all the particulars, how people can reach you. Uh, if they're in Greenwood, how they can take some of the tours, uh, how they can get the documentary film, any information you want to leave us with, you can do it now. And plus just email me some things and I'll put it on the, the website also. Absolutely. I definitely do that. Um, so the easiest way for, you know, anybody listening, just Google the real, you have to put the real, the real Black Wall Street tour. When you Google the real Black Wall Street tour, or whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you will find the real Black Wall Street tour company. You will see my name somewhere in some form or fashion. You can go to my website, which is www real black wall street tour.com. So it's pretty consistent. You know, that branding is important, but you got to put the real, the real black wall street tour, whether again, on all platforms, if you want to visit the site that has the documentary, simply put in center for public secrets, Patreon, Google center for public secrets, Patreon. That's where our film is being streamed. The Center for Public Secrets is, um, that's where we keep all our secrets. That's where we keep all the secrets that have been hidden from us. So people who want to know what happened to Dick Rowland and Sarah Page, you know, you want the truth, you can go there. Because we, we we're all about receipts and documentation. 
We won't give you a bunch of fallacy. You'll get some some really powerful write-ups about the mass graves because we got some research, a, a powerful research team that's done a lot of write-ups about it and how the city has failed, and, and we dig it in deep. Um, so Center for Public Secrets, uh, uh, Patreon. Oakland is the name of the documentary. You'll see it as soon as you go into the uh, uh, into the Center for Public Secrets Patreon page. But Oakland is the name of the documentary. Um, what am I missing? Um, I think that's it. Okay. Oh no, that's not it. <laughs> um, the um, National Geographic. I just, I just uh, in February, I released a plat uh, uh, the Real Black Wall Street tour, which is my company. National Geographic had me create a written. Um, it's, it's more like if you let's say you never you're never able to make it to Tulsa, and you have homeschool or you're in college. It doesn't matter which age you. I designed this thing to educate people on every level, and I've been, I've I've embedded my own personal story into the pro- platform, but it's called National Geographic 2892 Miles to Go. You know, you can even leave off National Geographic. Just put 2892 Miles to Go, Tulsa, and look for the Real Black Wall Street Tour once you get in there. But it's 28 Miles to Go, Tulsa, and you will see that. Any educator will love it. You will absolutely love it because you're going to see video footage of black people with oil gushers, Right, because I've had people say, "Oh, we, they romanticize the history of Black Oklahoma and Greenwood." Well, I'm gonna give you a reason to romanticize it, and we have a right to romanticize our history. So you're gonna get to see all of that. Your children will get to see all of that. Say, so, see, Black people did have land. They did have oil, like Wakanda. Or Greenwood, Oklahoma was Wakanda, and oil was vibranium. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that in LeBron James documentary that I feature in, called uh, "The Dreamland." But you you'll get access to that. You'll get to see black what black what Greenwood looked like, what people how people lived in Greenwood. You'll get to see video footage of all of that. You'll get to hear music that was played in Greenwood District. Like it's extremely interactive. I did not want to create some boring piece of documentation that the majority of us won't be enthused about. I wanted us to be enthused, encouraged, delighted, and you get to read. Some some juicy details about the mass graves. You know, there's a lot of footage there. There's a lot of information, and it's gonna it it, it it'll definitely give you plenty to <laughs> plenty to eat on. But 28 miles to go, Tulsa. Chief, uh, send me all those links. Uh, I sure will. And and send me your contact too, because I, I we want to get periodic updates from you. You come on and uh, anytime you want, and if anything breaks, you can reach out to me or Richard and uh, come on the program and let let our listening audience know exactly what's going on. Absolutely, sir. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you do. You know, I'm I'm, I'm always I'm always delighted to hear your voice. Oh man, <laughs> thank you, brother. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Peace. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, uh, our second guest will be joining us, educator and author and freelance writer, Brother Rand Miller, will be with us. Stay with us. You can reach out to us if you want to uh, join the conversation by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Time for an awakening. We'll be right back. 
Awakening, Time for an Awakening, with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media, part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years. Located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowners insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services. Representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies. Offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. The Digital Plantation, abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumitv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your global commit to you black family. To join your interconnected commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com. Abibitumi.tv. Abibitumitv.com. Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for 10 or 12 years, to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we're getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality, and uh, they're always looking for an excuse Uh, to go, but so far. And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of 
his people. See, brother said responsibility. Is it, is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table, the power that's in our community, the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America. We have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda. Thank you. Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of the time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Raph Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Marian Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young, but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. The examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Let anybody take your manhood. Time for an Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. It's 8.44 on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. I guess... Excuse me, in this second portion of our program, author, educator, and freelance writer, Rand Miller, is joining us in discussion. Uh, his article, uh, Brother Richard, share with me. The title of the article is Juneteenth Ended Slavery, but for many black people, life didn't change. I want to welcome to Time for an Awakening. Brother Rand Miller is with us. Brother Rand, how are you, sir? I'm doing well. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. I'm glad to have you on time for an awakening with myself and Brother Richard. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, Brother Miller, uh, listen, um, R- Richard shared with me your article. Richard's down there at the uh, museum down there on Seven Arch, and he shared with me your article on, uh, I think it was Wednesday of last week, because we've been talking about this on the program, and it, it was just so funny reading your article because... You said some of the things that we had been kicking around with our listening audience. 
But I like the perspective that you came from when you when you dealt with these issues. Um, the thing that kind of troubles me is when you hear some of our people talk about Juneteenth in their relation that they talk about it. It's no real historical perspective put to it. They might not even know the proper history of it, but they repeat the party line that's given to them by other folks saying that uh, black folks didn't know that they were free until the word got to Galveston, like they were the last to know that they were free. Historically, that's totally inaccurate. But I I want you to kind of talk about it from your perspective because you used uh, General Granger's uh, uh, edict or proclamation to black folks to kind of frame how you talked about this. Uh, Talk about the article from your perspective and what made you kind of write this? So I'll start there. Um, A a professor, Pennell Joseph, penned a piece, and um, it was a piece about Juneteenth talking about that the observance isn't what we necessarily thought. And his idea was just to basically say what I said in the piece, that General Granger's edict or ordinance or order that was released was more or less not an opportunity to mark freedom, quote unquote, but to mark the freedom to work. And so I wanted to really explore, you know, what that really looked like. And so in doing research on the piece, I found a couple of articles, uh, scholarly journal articles that talked about some of the challenges that black people faced, um, particularly in Galveston, throughout Texas even, once they received the notice from General Granger. Let me back up real quick to your earlier point. Mm-hmm. Uh, black people were certainly aware. I think that you make a, a, a great point when you say that, you know, folks were aware of their freedom. Black people, in fact, were aware of the war, so much so that even before the Emancipation Proclamation was declared, black people were what Dr. Uh, W.E.B. Du Bois talks about, they went on a general strike from the plantation. And that was happening as early as 1861, 1862. Black folks were leaving the plantation. Now, certainly there were some that were made to work as they were enslaved. They were made to work for those Confederate soldiers, but but just as many left the plantation and found uh, Union soldiers wherever they possibly could and joined or attempted to join the effort. And we know that Abraham Lincoln wasn't for black people serving in the war, but he was forced to do so because black people left the plantations and went to look to serve in the army. And as the Confederates were uh, hanging in there, if you will, as the Confederates were uh, at a place where they had enough strength to try and work with the Mexicans, particularly the French that were in control of Mexico at the time, to forge a partnership against the United States, Lincoln had no choice but to um, understand that he needed black soldiers in order to win. Uh, The other part of the history that we know that people don't talk about is the fact that there were many white people in the North who did not want to fight 
for the purposes of understanding it, it was about enslavement to begin with, and they didn't want to fight for enslaved African people. So it was us, it was black people, black soldiers that really um, saved this war, and that was long before the emancipation. So bringing it back to Galveston, as those black soldiers marched into Galveston, as those enslaved black people saw um, those soldiers march in, they had already heard murmurings about the Emancipation Proclamation. Certainly we didn't have, um, they didn't have what we have today in terms of social media and, and the promotion of information, but they were well aware. Um, and, and, you know, even though this proclamation, this order was, you know, put out there on, uh, June 19th, 1865, um, it was only a matter of time for many black people who were in the know. And, and the, the key, particularly for my article was really saying, okay, so what did the order actually mean? And it really doesn't mean what we think it does. I think that it's a convenient narrative to say that it means that all black people were freed full and formed throughout the country. And yes, there is some truth to that, but we really have to look at what the order actually says, what black people were free to. You know, b- before we look at the wording of that order, and, and I want you to kind of uh, say it from your perspective, I, w- I want to kind of go back to some of your article here, because some of the things you mentioned, we had Gerald Horn join us on the program. I guess it was about a month ago. Wasn't it Richard? Something like that. A little over a month. And, um, I'm going to read this paragraph that you mentioned here uh, in your article. It says, uh, uh, it is also important that the order decreeing that slaves were free was read in Galveston, Texas. The city that became the center of Juneteenth celebrations was once the major port of trafficking of Africans. Uh, Around the time of the order arrived, Galveston was also the biggest city in Texas, acting as a commercial hub within the Confederacy. And, I mean, that's one thing the history shows us, because, you know, we look now and we see uh, Dallas and San Antonio and Austin. But at that time, as as you stated in the article, and as history shows us, Galveston was the largest city at that time. But one thing that Gerald Horn talked about, was the the major trafficking of our people that was happening in Texas because mm-hmm. he mentioned how the, the Texas flag, the flag of Texas was being flown in, in uh, Cuba and also in Brazil because they dealt so much with trafficking our ancestors either from here to, to, uh, to uh, Cuba or to Brazil or the other way around. It was so much of a trafficking of our ancestors in that particular country at that time, because it wasn't a state that, uh, you know, that our people don't really know about because it's not discussed in uh, general history. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, oh, I, no oh, yeah. I, mm-hmm. no, go ahead. I'm sorry if I messed you up. Go ahead. No, no, no. You didn't. I just want you to throw something in there before I go to that and talk about that order. Oh, sure. So, so I think that, well, I, I have to say this, a lot of, um, well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I, in my book, Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids, I talk about the history of, of what we know as Texas, formerly known as Tejas, Mexican territory. And um, a lot of the information I, I actually, you know, took from Dr. Horn's 
work where he talked about how um, Texas was so racist, in fact, that uh, there was no allowance for any free black person in the state at a certain point uh, because those folks did not want to see those enslaved Africans. They didn't want them to see any free black people there. Um, Texas is a very interesting place. Like I said, it was a Mexican territory. Uh, the, the president of Mexico, uh, the first black president in North America, his name was Vicente Guerrero. He is the person responsible for abolishing enslavement throughout all of Mexico. But funny enough, he did not abolish it in Texas. In fact, he allowed it more so because the, the country wanted the territory of Tejas to be settled. They allowed white settlers from the United States to come in. Of course, they bring in their enslaved Africans. And after some point, the Mexican government, long after Guerrero had passed, decided that we're going to go ahead and enforce um, our law that there would be no enslavement. There wouldn't be any more enslavement. And, and if there were any Africans who left and fled to Mexico, and that's the Underground Railroad going into Mexico, we are not going to give them back. And that is what spurred the Texas Revolution. That's what spurred uh, the United States annexing Mexico, uh, Texas into uh, the country. So it has a very interesting history, if you will. And, and Dr. Horn talks about this often in a number of his um, important works. So, you know, Texas is just a, it, 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 like any state, like your South Carolinas, like your Georgias, your Mississippis, your Alabamas. Texas has a very unique place in Americana, particularly with respect to enslavement. And so to really understand what this order meant in the context of Juneteenth, we really have to understand the role Texas played in the uh, peculiar institution or the story thereof and, and the meaning of Galveston with respect to black people, African people, and that being a huge major port just like Charleston was in South Carolina and, and the, the atmosphere surrounding how black people were thought of and treated and, you know, what enslaved African people had to deal with while they were there. Uh, Brother Rand, the, <clears throat> the general order number three that was issued uh, at Galveston, uh, you, you uh, stated and you restated, in fact, you restated in your article uh, the first portion of the order is very interesting. And the last portion is even more interesting because that order in itself is never talked about when our people deal with the, the subject of Juneteenth. They talk about it from the, the perspective of, of our ancestors saying that they were free. But the the captors, so to speak, or the the uh, uh, the the relatives or the brethren of the captors didn't word it in that fashion. Uh, talk about some of the things that troubled you in the wording of uh, the order. So I think that um, with this order, we we tend to focus on the first part and not the second. We have a we have a funny tradition in this country. When we look at documents, famous documents or famous speeches, we tend to focus on the part that doesn't seem too uh, revolutionary 
too focused on resistance. Um, and, and, and then we fail to, you know, we neglect the other parts that do have the revolutionary spirit within them. We do it with the, I have a dream speech. Um, we certainly do it with the 13th amendment. Uh, and we're, and we're doing it here with this general order. And, And so I have it in front of me and the order reads, the people are informed that in accordance with the proclamation from the executive of the United States, all slaves are free. Okay. We hear that part. We know that part. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves and the connection here to four existing between them become that uh, between employer and hired labor. So that's the first thing that the relationship is no longer enslaved to master, but from employer to hired labor. So the key there is understanding that while the quote unquote designation of enslaved person has changed, the capitalist relationship did not. They did not take power away from the captor. They merely changed the name uh, of power to look a little bit something different. Employer in this case. If we continue, the freed are advised to remain in their present homes and work for wages. They are informed that they will not be allowed to collect at military posts and they will not be supported in idleness either there or elsewhere. So here we see that not only are we now changing the designation of a racially capitalistic relationship. But now we're also saying that you should remain in your homes, quote unquote, your home, <laughs> remain on the plantation. And then you can't collect at military posts. That means we're not going to allow you to join the armed forces and that you will not be supported in idleness. This is sort of the precursor to black codes that were coming up. Right. And so this, order says so much. And when we look at the history, when we specifically look at what happens in Texas and Galveston, we see that General Granger and a number of the Union troops made the point to say, hey, we're not concerned with the rights of black people. We're concerned with making sure that, you know, this change simply doesn't impact the money. What do I mean by the money? Of course, cotton was the big harvest. Right. And so you had enslavers who were lying to African-Americans, African people, saying that they weren't free in order for them to continue to harvest cotton. Because at this time, the United States is the largest exporter of cotton in the world. And the federal government understood that as well. And so the Union troops were sent there specifically to ensure that the harvest was um, continuing, that the uh, removal of the designation of these African people as enslaved did not harm the cotton crop and did not prevent the cotton crop from being harvested. And so to that end, Union soldiers really kind of allowed the Texas government to do some of the things that they wanted to do. You had the former mayor of Galveston, you know, putting out orders. You had black people being killed. Uh, just for leaving the plantation. Uh, and, and so, you know, when we think of Juneteenth, I think it is is great for black people to rally around that date because, as one of my professors always said, a lot of these holidays that black people try to, to you know, coalesce around don't involve a level of bloodshed. Juneteenth involves a level of bloodshed because if it weren't for black people fighting in this war, Juneteenth wouldn't have happened. So I think it's important that we we uh, coalesce around the day. 
But I also think it's equally important to understand that the day is sort of a foreshadowing or forecasting of what we are dealing with today. Certainly we are, um, we, we are able to maneuver in ways that we weren't once able to do so, but we still fight for liberation today. And just like those Africans at that point, they could not, um, well, let me rephrase it. They, they were able to maneuver differently as a result of the emancipation and as a result of the Civil War winning, but they still had to fight for liberation. And, and that should be a cause for us to remember that history in order to chart our path moving forward. Richard? You know, as as we're we're pursuing this, you know, and and I did appreciate your article, of course, as uh, Elliot said, um, Brother Miller, we we've kind of been like, I guess when we, you know, when the language like came, it's it's so blatant, right, um, that your relationship is going to be um, no longer like the substitution, right, no longer as in slaver to slave, but owner to labor. Which, which, you know, um, as you say, frames frames our position. I think that, that special order number three frames our position in relationship to the country or the uh, the American, the, as you say, capitalist project clearer than any other. Like mm-hmm. a shift, right? Um, and and my understanding is a lot of those owners were Confederates. I mean, mm-hmm. that owned the land. They were. They were Confederate, so the union was supporting that. But the um, question—I guess it's not a question—but you know, I wanted to um, get when we and I, and I heard you mention that you, you know you did a children's book. When we when we do um, celebrate or commemorate um, Juneteenth, um, based off of using order number three, how uh, how do you see that we? To, to how should we do that? Because it seems that most America, uh, American Africans are conflicted with our nativism. On one hand, we are part of it, but on the other hand, we're being shown that we're not a part of it when we celebrate it. How do you see that we resolve that? And, I, and maybe that might be an unfair question, but since you uh, thought through this article, maybe you have something you can offer to us. How do you see that we resolve that, especially when we're talking to the next generation. Yeah. Uh, well, to, to your point about the conf- the confliction for black folks, I you know I can't help but think of James Baldwin and his quote to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious as to be in a state of rage almost all the time. <laughs> um, certainly, we do um, struggle with that. But but here's what I would say: I think that when we think about um, Juneteenth, I think that we should commemorate the day um, in, in terms of commemorating our, our history of resistance, black resistance, right? Um, as I mentioned in the piece, the story doesn't end with um, those enslavers trying to hinder black folks, trying to hurt black folks, trying to kill black folks. It doesn't end there. Uh, just because that order says what it says, black folks left that plantation. Mm-hmm. Um I think people have to remember that black folks resisted. They left that plantation. They did not stay on there and they left for three reasons. One, they left because they needed to find their family. Certainly enslavement, one of the great evils of enslavement. And there were many, 
but one of the great evils was the separation of mothers and fathers, separation of husbands and wives and children from their parents and grandparents and those sort of things. You know, folks often wonder why black people do things like, you know, a play cousin or, or, or auntie here, auntie, that, 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 that stems back from that. We had to make familial relationships where there weren't any. Um, so that was the first thing. The second thing, understanding that in this country, in order to build wealth, you need property. And the one thing that the emancipation, that the, the, you know, amendments and all those things they did not do was give black people property. And so what black folks did was they had to leave and they had to find property of my own. An, an ancestor in my family by the name of Adam Jakes, he had to leave South Carolina after the Civil War. Left his mother and his family in South Carolina and found some property in a town called Attabugas, Georgia. Um, 20 of those 100 acres that he purchased, we still have in our family to this day. So, you know, that's what black folks had to do in order to build wealth. And my grandmother always said, you know, she said it to my great-grandmother, said it to my grandmother, who said it to my father. You know, we have this land. In case anyone ever needs to come down and needs a place to live, they can just come down and don't have to worry about paying for nothing because that's wealth in this country. So that's the second reason. And the third reason why they left the plantation was because they did not want to work on the plantation anymore. We often think about the sharecroppers, those folks that had to do that work. But black people left by and large to create their own life in terms of farming for themselves, in terms of working and hiring out their labor for themselves. Um, black people resisted. And so when we think of Juneteenth, we have to think and celebrate or commemorate the date in a light of remembering those ancestors for resisting. They resisted before the war, they resisted during the war, and they definitely resisted after the war. And we continue that tradition of, of black resistance, that black radical tradition that, that Cedric Robinson talked about. We continue that to this very day. And, and so for, for me and mine, me and my wife, we agree, and certainly with our children, um, it's, it's a day to remember our people resisting, uh, our people having their, their firm hand in their own liberation. And, you know, it's interesting. And I have to, uh, Elliot and, and to you, brother Miller, I, you know, this, the, in this conversation, I have to pose this as we're looking at 2023, cause this comes up, um, or it came up this year and this, um, and it might, it might be coming up, you know, regular after it passes, whether um, because Juneteenth became a national hel- holiday, you know, um, which people were, you know, just now given federal from the federal system um, and in the context of black resistance, um, do do we see that we are are, and, you know, with this national designation, are we um, uh, do you have y'all heard that we have um, placed this this um, black resistance as a part of our, our memory, utilizing Juneteenth as a part of our memory. Is black resistance a part of the now national um, memory that is being commemorated utilizing Juneteenth? Um, or is this holiday, this holiday Juneteenth, um, really centered in uh, special order number three in relationship that we are just workers and we need to be happy in relationship to the owners and we just get a day off. And my, I don't, I, hopefully I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but 
when I think about special order number number three and I think about, you know, Juneteenth and I think about this federal, it, isn't it commemorating that we are workers? Um even though, and you know, you know, slavery by another name. How do y'all think about that? Yeah, I don't think you're being sarcastic at all. I follow you completely, and I and I think you're definitely on to something. Um, I, I would probably say, um, to borrow from uh, how Professor Greg Carr, uh, Juneteenth is sort of rooted in a Eurocentric. Um, Americana kind of myth-making, if you will. Mm, and, yes. and what I mean by that is, so, you know, the beauty of black folk is that we don't need the social structure to set up our own uh, memorials, right? We can do that on our own. And I'm thinking about Negro History Week. I'm thinking about Black History Month. Before it became officially Black History Month, black folks were celebrating Black History Month in the 1950s and 40s. Uh, they knew that it wasn't enough for one week. They knew they wanted to do it for a month. And it was really those uh, black college students who would later join the civil rights movement, really making it into what it was as Black History Month. So I say that to say folks, black folk been celebrating Juneteenth since um, 1866. Uh, when, when it was first celebrated in Galveston, we didn't need the federal government to tell us that. But what the what the social structure has to do is they have to take the narrative because to your point, brother, this holiday is not rooted in black resistance. In fact, no history told in our schools, told in any facet apart from black folks telling it per se is rooted in black resistance. In fact, (laughs) when we resist, there's always a backlash. That's Mm -hmm. why you have, that's why you have these schools out here and these governors and these politicians, these conservatives trying to prevent black history from being taught because it's a backlash because as we resist, we always get the backlash. So I would say that Juneteenth is rooted in this, this Americana white settler colonial myth-making that once again, white benevolence is responsible for the current status of black people. It's why you always hear, you know, some white folks make comments to say, well, you know, if it wasn't for us, you'd still be in Africa in huts. Mm-hmm. Or if it wasn't for us, you know, you wouldn't know who, you know, you wouldn't have religion because you, you were able to come to this country, even though you were enslaved. If it wasn't for us enslaving you, you wouldn't be here. It's that sort of idea that, you know, even in our sin, we did you a solid. And that's not the truth. That's not the case. But that's, again, narrative myth-making uh, on the part of, of, of this white settler project that we currently live in, right? So um, when you see Juneteenth become a national holiday, it's not framed in the way of black resistance. It's framed, again, as, you know, we fought a war, we won the war, and because we won the war, black people are now free. Um, and that's why it's so important that when we teach this history, you know, that, that we, we investigate, that we get our hands on some, um, you know, materials that can tell us the truth. And if we can't get our hands on materials, we find those, um, those griots, if you will. We find those individuals who know the, the history, that know the truth, and we, and we sit under them and we listen. You know, everybody's not going to have the opportunity to read Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois 
you know, I, I think we should, but everybody's not going to be able to do that. Right. Um, for one reason or another. But what I will say is that we who are in the position to do read that, to, to speak on those things that we, we use that as an opportunity to, to teach our own and to inform our own. So that way they're aware of what the history really is. It's, 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 it's there for us to do. Um, so yeah, I think that the, to your earlier point about the sort of wrestling, if you will, of, of being a part of this country, but, but understanding that this country is not for us and with us, when we have an understanding of history, I think that we can confront the the matters that are at our table a little bit better with more clarity and peace of mind as opposed to um, confronting it with confusion and frustration. That's what history does. And as long as you are unaware of history, you cannot move forward. You cannot navigate. And that's what we're seeing in our country now. We're, it's not just about not educating black people it's about not educating all people so that way the the lines are blurred with respect to whose rights are whose and who gets to do what and what history says was that confusion is what is at stake and 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 when we have a confused society then we have a society that is only about self a society that is not rooted in community and a society where all people are in danger black people especially, but all folks as well. Uh, Brother Miller, the, um, it's something that you, you uh, penned another article in reference to Juneteenth that I saw in the progressive. And you say something in there that kind of relates to, uh, the first guest we had when he talked about, uh, libations. Do you remember what he said, Richard, about libations being poured by, uh, 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 Black folks and they don't really know where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned here in, the, in your in your article. I'm reading the Progressive, uh, uh, Brother Miller, and I wasn't really aware of this because I was born and raised in Philly, and uh, you know we didn't practice Juneteenth. I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't really aware of it until later on. But I'm reading what you state here in reference to, and let me just read a couple of the things and then you take it from there. It says Juneteenth gatherings customarily feature red foods such as strawberry pie, watermelons, barbecue, red rice, red velvet cake, red sausage. And you talk about the importance of the red that they were consuming that comes straight from the continent. Talk about it from, uh, I I know you remember that article. Just talk about Mm -hmm. the importance of that in relation to our people's culture and things that might have been hidden, but just kind of came to the surface by them, by their actions. So, you know, I'll start with this. I'll say that there's so much that, that we are unaware of with respect to what came with us. Um, to uh, the United States from Africa. There, there are so many different things. And, you know, I think about, a, there's a book, I forget the first name of the gentleman, but I believe the last name is Holloway. Uh, it's called Africanisms in America. And in the book, he speaks about all of the different um, Africanisms, if you will, that came across the Atlantic with those Africans to be enslaved. 
And and some of those things, you know, are, are intangible things, but then some of them are tangible, like food. There's so much food um, that came um, from Africa across the Atlantic, right? You know, if, if you grew up in a certain household, you might have had some okra in your household, right? And okra comes from Africa. That isn't something that was generic here. That is as African. Um, you know, one of the reasons why rice was so cultivated in the South was because um, you know, Africans had rice in Africa. And so they knew what to do, how to harvest it, all those sort of things. And so um, a number of those red items come from Africa. Watermelon comes from Africa as well. The reason why the, the, the red is so important is because it represents a number of things. It represents um, resilience. It, it represents uh, resistance, and it also represents joy. And certainly it, it, it is in memory of the blood that was shed during the Civil War um, for black people to be free. And, and so, you know, that is where that, that red, um, it, it, it comes in. That's why it's so important. You know, we, my wife made a red velvet cake for Juneteenth. We had a hibiscus iced tea to drink. There was watermelon in the house. There was red oh, you meat. Oh, come on now. <laughs> we had we, we had all that. You know what I mean? And then and and so it's and I say that, that and the other reason why it's important, you know, one of the reasons why I think that we are uh, as black folk we, we struggle is because we don't have that that memory, right? That memory isn't always there. Uh, and, and so it's important for us to, um, not only find the memory, to connect to the memory, connect to those historians, those folks that did that work, that intellectual work, you know, um, it's important to continue that with your, with your own young people so that they have the memory. Um, one of the, I'm sure you brothers can, can attest one of the, um, interesting things about getting older is that you see more and more folk that were in your life turned to ancestors. And when they turn to ancestors, all that, that knowledge, that memory, it, it transitions with them. And, and so it's important to, you know, keep that memory alive for young people. It's important for me as a father that my, my kids, they have that memory so they can do this with their children and, and those sort of things. And, um, you know, it's, it's so important that, that we do, and we, we, we often lament the fact that we don't have these traditions and these linkages to Africa, but if we really, really did, thought about it, if we really looked at it and saw what was um, right in front of us, there are so many linkages to, to the motherland. There's so many linkages, because we are African people. We are African people, and I'll make this point. I think, the, the, you know, as African people, we have to recognize that our, um, our destiny is tied in with all the African people of the diaspora. It's not just black people in the United States. It's African people in the Caribbean. It's African people in South America. It's African people in Mexico. It's African people throughout the entirety of the Western Hemisphere. And we've got to link our destinies with, with African people because white supremacy is not relegated to simply the United States. White supremacy is worldwide. White colonialism happened all over the world. And if we're going to fight back, 
we can't do that isolated from our brothers and sisters throughout the world. We have to, to understand that we are part of a global majority uh, of African black people um, in order to take down this white supremacy, this racial capitalism that we find ourselves still being oppressed in um, in 2023. And as an educator, for me, um, that battle starts um, not just at home, but it starts in the community and it starts with educating. And, um, you know, to the point of me writing my book, that's one of the reasons why I wrote that book to, 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 you know, facilitate memory and to begin that revolution of the mind through education and the recognition of our history and the history of this country and knowing what is versus what isn't. Uh, before we kind of wind up the conversation with the, with the uh, brother Rand Miller, let me read the last paragraph uh, because, and I, and I want you to share with this because I, 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 I've seen, you know, the the national uh, commemoration of this holiday. It's only been a couple of years. But I see some bad things starting to happen. And let me read it. I mean, let me uh, read what you say in relation to my feelings and get you to expand on it. Uh, at the end of this article that you wrote in The Progressive, it says the legacy of Juneteenth the truest Independence Day we have deserves to be taught in schools and commemorated. We've got to be specific about its origins, lest we unintentionally erase the holiday's meaning for black Texans. Mm. And then, like many other holidays, Juneteenth is also in danger of becoming commodified by corporations looking to capitalize on racist tropes. Brother Miller, talk about that because I, this year especially, I started to see signs of what you're warning against in this article. Yeah, um, I think that, um, again, we live in a capitalistic society where you know, historically, when we speak about racial capitalism, we understand that that, that means the the economic, physical as well, exploitation of, of labor, and black labor in particular, and even other peoples of color. And we know that in this society, um, particularly after some sort of big, quote-unquote, racial reckoning of sorts, um, there is a desire for corporations to get on board. As soon as George Floyd was murdered and those protests went on, you see corporations lining up to sort of say, hey, we're going to tackle DEI. We're going to tackle um, uh, matters of black history. We want to teach on these things. We want to hire people to do this stuff. And we're going to have products and things of that nature. We'll have representation and all these sort of things, right? And so, you know, while that sounds all well and good in the beginning, that really turns into, well, we're going to have Juneteenth bucket hats and we're, we're, we're a basketball team. We're going to have a Juneteenth basketball jacket uh, with our logo on showing that we support Juneteenth. We're going to have notebooks with Juneteenth written all over them. We're going to have Juneteenth candy and, and all these sort of things. Matter of fact, you can get your Juneteenth sweatshirt, your hat, and your sweatpants at an affordable price. Just come on into our store and you can go ahead and get that. Right? That's what 
it becomes black history has become that. I mean, you got police cars painted black history on them. Knowing good and well, you know, we know the history of the police. I'm not sure if they do. Um, but but that is the society that we live in. And I think that you find, I certainly found a lot of black people who detest the fact that this is a national holiday, not because they detest the holiday itself, but they detest the um, commodification of it. They detest, um, you know, the, the appropriation of it. And I completely understand that because it, it takes away from what the actual day is and what it means. Um, and so I'm not sure if you can ever escape that. Uh, we live in a society whereby we're just, we're, we have to deal with this capitalism uh, until the folks decide that they don't want to deal with it no more. But that's another discussion. But what I will say is that, um, again, we have to make sure that, that these holidays are our own. And the way that we do that is that we keep the memory of why we commemorate such a day. And, and we promote and teach the history, if, if with no one else, most certainly amongst ourselves and our own people. And we do so in a way where the memory stays alive and the history stays alive in our community where it can never be hijacked. Maybe the world does what it wants to do. The social structure is going to do what it wants to do. But as black people, we have to understand and remember what, what this history is. Um, that's up to us to do. Right. That's up to us. We have the ability to dictate what our narrative is. Um, we have the means, we have the mechanisms to do so, and, and, and we have to make that decision. And it's my hope and prayer that we make the right decision. But I believe in black people. I love black people. I believe in us. Um, even when we, we, we falter and we stumble, we falter and stumble under the conditions unlike any other group of people in, in a society um, that we've seen in modern times. And, and with that said, I, I, I afford us a level of grace, and I hope that we all afford ourselves a level of grace, but I believe in us that we will do what we need to do in order to keep the history alive. We've been keeping the history alive this, this long. Um, I don't think that we're going to stop anytime soon. Um, and so while the world may do what it wants to do with Juneteenth, while corporations may do what they want to do with Juneteenth, I, I believe that we will do what we need to do with Juneteenth. And um, if, if folks keep speaking up, speaking out, educating, I think that we will be in a place where, at the very least, um, there will be some truth to shed light in a land of darkness. Let's go to 215, see if there's a question or comment for our guest. 215? 215. Let's go to Newport News, see if it's a question or comment for our guest. Newport News. No, no, no. I don't have any questions, man. All right. Just just enjoying it. I'm sorry. Great job. I said just enjoying it as usual. Great job getting this lesson. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Brother Miller, before we uh, wind things down today, uh, listen, uh, give uh, give our listening audience any, uh, how they can contact, how they can, uh, it, because I understand that you do a podcast also, and uh, and you have uh, the children's books, uh, and you're, you're an educator. So, I mean, give, give the whole gamut. Anything that you want to give in relation to how people can reach out to you if they're in the area of Philadelphia or New Jersey or even Delaware, how they can maybe bring you in to talk to children or whatever just the floor is yours 
Sure. Thank you. Um, and again, pleasure to be with you brothers tonight um, to talk about this very important topic. Uh, folks that are looking to reach me, um, they can find me um, numerous places. You can find me on um, social media. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. Uh, Real Rand Miller. Real Rand Miller. That's on Twitter. That's on Instagram. Um, my my book, Resistance Stories from Black History for Kids. It is a, a book for grades four through eight. That's grades four through eight, not ages four to eight. Grades four through eight, but it is available and important for uh, adults as well. Adults can certainly learn and read from this book. It's available at all uh, major retailers. You can go pick that up online. Um, also, my, my uh, blog for educators, particularly in urban settings, the Urban Education Mixtape. It's just Urban Ed Mixtape on the Urban Education Mixtape.com. You can get tips and tools um, there. And uh, certainly you can reach out to me on my website. Uh, it's my um, uh, basically information with articles and, and all kinds of stuff www.randmiller.com. Uh, you can see my articles there. You can reach out to me there uh, and get in touch, get in contact with me uh, that way also. Good. Uh, Richard? I just want to appreciate that you were able to, um, with, you know, the, the whole thing of, what is that, how that phrase say? Uh, like minds think alike, or whatever that is. Great <laughs> minds think alike. That's right. That's right. Uh, now, see, I'm gonna I'm act like I was trying to be humble. I didn't want to say great minds, even though. You're... I, I did, uh, just, listen, I'm a, I'm a, I'll big you up for you. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we we've been exploring this, and then when we seen the article, and like, you know, like with the alignment, we need to just uh, get that, uh, you know, re emphasizing. But I'm. Glad that we're we're um, all on the same page in relationship as we move out of this month and as we move into next year um, of what we know. And I like the idea that you brought that we have to put it in the context of that um, black radical tradition, and we have to be um, take ownership um, of Juneteenth and memorializing that memory. Um, regardless whatever happens um, by anybody else um, for their own self-interest. So I'm, I'm glad that we were able to have this dialogue tonight. Likewise, likewise. Uh, Brother Rand, uh, also uh, send me the, uh, those links that you just stated. Send me all those links because when I put the podcast up, I'm going to put all those links uh, on there too so the people can, after they listen, they can uh, uh, link up with you. Will do. Will do. And and I appreciate that. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for being with all us. All right, take care. No, thank, thank you. you. Right. Take care, gentlemen. Right. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll start winding down. to Time for an Awakening. Time for an Awakening with host Brother Elliot and Brother Richard on Time for an Awakening Media. 
part of the Black Talk Radio Network. For podcasting or live program scheduling, hit them up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. All Insurance Incorporated, an African-American-owned and operated insurance agency and business for over 20 years, located at 231 Southeastern Road in Glenside, PA, with other offices in Germantown and West Philadelphia. Call now for commercial insurance quotes, homeowner's insurance quotes, automobile insurance quotes, notary and tax services, representing over 15 major A-rated insurance companies, offering a discount on all notary services when you call in for a free quote. Call this number, 21 21- 215-885-2444. That number is 215-885-2444. 215-885-2444. All Insurance Incorporated. I transformed a $24,000 a year odd job handyman service into a seven-figure high-end custom home builder and commercial contractor licensed and operating in three states. This is just one of the tangible transformations I've created for entrepreneurs in various industries around the country. If this isn't what you think of when you think of accounting and business consulting, then get ready to take down this invaluable information. Are you an entrepreneur suffering with a stagnating company? Have headache customers, staff, or vendors? Are you rebounding from a loss and need help achieving your unrealized potential? Or are you a startup who wants to get it right the first time and avoid the costly mistakes? Hi, my name is Nataki Kanban. If you're ready to go beyond advising and coaching and get results, then call 301-244-9072. Let New Business Solutions recommend and implement the best comprehensive sales, administrative, human resources, accounting, and operations to help you grow into your vision for yourself and your company. Again, from anywhere nationally, call 301-244-9072 or pull us up on your device right now and book your free consultation at www.newbusinesssolutions.com. And just mention you heard this special announcement on Time for an Awakening. RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter, serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today, 484-268-9837. Twelve years I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not too distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. They were booing because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. And so the collision course is set. The desegregation decisions and other type of legislation and Supreme Court decisions depends upon changing the white man's mind. 
The Honorable Elijah Muhammad teaches uh, us that our own mind has to be changed. We have to change our uh, mind about ourselves. In what way? Well, so he uh, teaches us the importance of moral reformation, uh, a knowledge of self. And, uh, for instance, the average so-called Negro, he doesn't think that he can uh, go into business and provide jobs for himself. And because of this, he thinks that he can only get a job from the white man, or he can only get clothes from the white man, or he can only get food from the white man. And we who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad are taught that uh, the same thing that the white man has done for himself and his kind, uh, if our people could uh, be uh, wrecked, if, they could, if we could be cured of our slave mentality that was uh, indoctrinated into us during slavery, we would realize that just as the white man can do these things for himself and his kind, we can get together in unity and harmony and do the same thing for ourselves and our kind. not wondering at all about them. What I'm concerned with the suffering and the pain of the masses of black people. No one wants to pay reparations. The Jews received over a hundred billion dollars in reparations and gets four billion annually. A Holocaust museum was set up for them on this soil for over two hundred million dollars and they get two twenty-one million annually just for operating expenses. But the Catholic Church, the Pope, the Jews, the Arabs, white people in general, no one wants to pay reparations to these, the sons and daughters of Africa. So I speak to them. I don't speak. I speak to them. I don't speak to the family of those two Jews. There are too, too many of us for me to speak to them. And one of the reasons why I'm always happy to come to this organization, because you're the only one, you're the only black organization, again, that understands to put race first. Race first. Race first. And I've had some white folks to tell me that I was a flaming militant, a radical, or whatever all of these names were that they called me. And I said that I am very pleased that you've called me a nationalist, because you could have said that I was a member of the NAACP of the Urban League. So I said, I'm very pleased of the names that you have given. But I said that because we put race first, something is wrong with us. But everybody else puts their own first because God blessed the child who has his own. And so I think that race first is very important. And though we meet in a different venue, we're not at the slave theater, we're not at the church, we're now at the Masonic Temple, it really does not matter where we are physically. It matters where we are in our minds. And wherever we meet, as long as we know that we're Africans and as long as we know that we're black people living here in America, we know exactly who we are. You notice you can put an Uncle Tom in any venue in the White House. You can even put him in his. He's going to still be a Tom. You can put him anywhere you want. Well, it's the same thing with us who are strong people. Wherever we are, we're going to be the people that we need to be. encourage let me just say this before our time winds up and that is I want the people in the audience to go back and look at 
a video clip from Roots. It's entitled something like Breaking Kunta Kente. That scene opens with Lauren Green uh, sitting in, who's the plantation master, sitting in his office and then Fiddler comes in and says, um, uh, we don't want to be too hard on the runaway. Kunta Kente has just run away and been caught. And um, so the time comes for him to get his lashing. And if you look at this scene, it's about nine minutes, and study the scene. Study the role of everybody or bodies that are in this particular clip. And you will find that there is an equivalent role in the political life of our country today, whether it's on the national level or on the local level. There's the black man, who actually does the whipping of Kunta Kinte. There's the white man who does the whipping. There's the black man who intervenes with the boss man and tries to save the life of Kunta Kinte. There's Kunta himself, who eventually is forced to admit that his name is Toby. And there's, a, there's dozens of bystanders, black, who are watching. This, this is a very powerful thing. And it's an analogy of exactly what is happening in our community today. Let's give those characters names in our community and call them what they are and then take care of business about that. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Um, I want to thank our guest to spend some time with us this evening. Activist and organizer and documentary filmmaker, uh, Chief uh, Agunwale Musan was with us. Uh, I'm going to put up on the, uh, when I put up the podcast, the links for the documentary Oaklawn, uh, which talks about the uh, investigation around the mass graves of our ancestors from the Tulsa Race Massacre and other interesting uh uh, tidbits you're going to find in that documentary. Also, author, educator, educator, and freelance writer, uh, Brother Rand Miller was with us, did some interesting articles on Juneteenth and a lot of other interesting articles that he's written. You can find them on some of the links that I'll put up on the podcast. Richard, it was an interesting conversation with both of the men. Oh, definitely, definitely. I think, and it, I think it, it helps as we, um, you know, move out of June and all it represents, um, to be able to have this, you know, these, these two um, conversations that, you know, really bring out um, our historical value 
our need for memory and and how that relates to now, not necessarily something that dealt with and is just dealing with in, about the past for the past seat. You know, it uh, it was kind of ironic, Richard, that uh, he said he didn't find out the, that his grandfather until they had those, they, they had those uh, public hearings, I think he said, and he found and, out that his grandfather and, was uh, He said they, yeah. didn't, they didn't talk about it. Yeah. That's not the first time we've heard that being said, Richard. Yeah. If you remember and, and uh, 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 what Demi Till's uh, 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 family member <laughs> said on the program. Which goes to how much um, of our memory is being repressed in our in our within our generations, and 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 it's going to be different for us because the generations that's coming before us will have you know like we're excavating to be able to tell them, but we got to be able to put this in front of them because we're willing. We ain't got no fear to express the memory to express the history. It's just that we got to make sure that we can be able to put it to them so that they can pass it on. Uh, You know what I mean? Like before they, you know, they were protecting, you know, it it reminds me what um, my brother was saying, you know, mentor minds was saying uh, at one point of what um, black mothers and fathers did on those plantations when they seen a young, uh, a male or young female who was, you know, like vibrant, aggressive, bodacious, audacious, how, what they had to do to curtail them to save their life. Because, you know, you know, young people today, we, even babies, they might say things that today we might see as innocent. Then that could have got them killed. And they had to come up ways with this to protect them, things that they wouldn't tell them, things that they made them, you know, told them not to do. Not because they shouldn't do it, because if they did do it, their lives were in jeopardy for doing it. Yeah. Richard, uh, before we leave tonight, man, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge a great man. I'd love the man. Yes, <laughs> he'd become an ancestor now, and I know that the ancestors are happy to see him and reward him for his work while he was alive. Dr. Mm-hmm. Charles Bloxon made transition. Um, I found out earlier in the week. Uh, Eighty nine, he was Richard. Yeah, uh, all of those markers that you see in Pennsylvania that the. Uh, talked about our ancestors being here or there or a person was lived here or that those markers wouldn't be in existence if it wasn't for Charles Bloxon. There you go. When they were building that constitution center down there at six and market that they have here in Philadelphia, acknowledging uh, the first president's house, that construction was stopped because Dr. Bloxon found out that our ancestors down there was, was abused down there by Washington. It was living in that, that, that lived in that house. There you go. And they made that monument down there to, uh, I think it was, I forgot the number. It was 11 of them that, that worked in that house, Richard, that yeah. was in, that was enslaved by Washington. Yeah, it's, uh, his, 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 uh, his legacy will follow him. And, and, you know, they got, they got his collection over there at Temple University. 
the blocks and collection and uh you know he was a guest on the program two or three times when we was on uh terrestrial radio and i think one time after we started streaming mm. and i always had him you know sometimes you gotta when something hits your spirit you gotta move on it Something had been telling me this year to reach out to Dr. Bloxon and get him on, Richard, and now he's made transition. You know, it, it, you know, because I, you know, I, I kind of follow sports. You know, Dr. Bloxon could have been one of the pioneers in the darn pro football, Richard. He was a he was a heck of an yeah. athlete. He went to uh, Penn State, graduated in nineteen fifty six. Uh, he could have been drafted, but he decided to be an educator. He was, he, it was something else pulling him because he was a fullback in the backfield. Lenny Moore was the running back and Rosie Greer was the offensive lineman. Dr. Bloxham was the fullback. All uh, those other two men went on to, because he, he, he didn't, he didn't, wasn't available. He didn't make himself available for that draft. He could have went in with those other two men. Those men became great football, NFL greats and Hall of Famers, both of them, Lenny Moore and Rosie Greer. Yeah, but uh, his his thing that was pulling in was the ancestors and revealing, you know, their whereabouts here, and, and, uh, and he specialized in Pennsylvania. Yeah, so he he was he was something else. He was a track and and and, and a, a football great. Before he was uh, became great in something else, he was he was he was a he was a heck of an athlete. Yeah, I'm gonna miss old Doctor Bloxer. I just want to make mention of that, uh, Richard. It's important and powerful. Uh, before we leave tonight, just uh, get the lineup on time for an awakening. And uh, you know what? Uh, I guess we reach out to uh, because I I think um, uh, Brother Patrick might have been on earlier. Right. Uh, I'm probably just checking things out. But uh, uh, they'll be having that Black Power Convention coming up in September. And, and uh, um, I know he's going to be a, a billboard and things. And we'll be uh, doing some things here in conjunction with it. So, uh, But, uh, you know, you'll be hearing more about it on, uh, when you, as you're listening to the program moving forward. Uh, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, African Perspectives with Brother Oshi. Always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, Mississippi on the move. Uh, Brother Patrick Lumumba and the Black Liberation Movement down in Mississippi. That's Thursdays from 7 to 8 on Fridays. Time for Awakening is back from 8 until on Saturdays, the Elders of Sankofa from 7 to 9 with host Dr. Janine James. And on Sunday, time for uh, an Awakening is back from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening lively discussion as always and we'll be back on Friday Lord willing to continue on this path towards an awakening peace peace you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon are you watching your children playing after school
something, yeah, to save the children. Yeah, to save the children. 